Well, hi. It's uh, it's always good to have you in my home. It's nice to be here with you uh, again. Now, now you have to understand, uh, it's cold in my house, and I'm a cheapskate. I don't want to turn on my heat, so I'm bundled up tonight to uh, to stay warm. <laughs> no big deal. It's also actually I love the cold, and so I enjoy it. I enjoy it like this. Okay, so on this journey we find ourselves on, I, we, we've set the stage for the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Now, understand something about this study we're going to pursue. We're not going to study everything about Jesus' ministry. We're not going to, I, I, that may frustrate some of you. By the way, if, if there's something you want us to talk about, throw a comment out and we'll see what we can do. But, as we go through it, I call it, we're just skipping a rock through it. But I have, I have a purpose for this, and I have goals that I hope to accomplish. And so uh, we'll, we'll hit some highlights along the way. But there's, there's something big coming that, that I'm going to try to put forth a case for. And it's going to develop all the way through our study, all the way through his ministry. And, and I want to propose it to you now. Sorry, my nose is itching. Wait a minute. Uh. Okay. I want to throw it out to you now so you hopefully can see this thing develop along the way to where it reaches a crescendo in the end. Here's, here's what I propose. As bad as the physical suffering that Jesus went through was, and we know it was, it was horrific what he suffered physically. As bad as that was, I'm going to propose to you that his emotional suffering was worse. And you may or may not have ever even considered that or thought about it. You may have, I, I don't know. But I think it's a big deal and I think it's something important for us to, to see and understand. Yes, at the culmination of, uh, of his ministry, but all along the way as well. So anyway, that's, that's, that's one of my main goals in this process as we get to know him better and better. So, he uh, he is qualified. He is the one. He indeed is the Messiah. And so, his ministry is about to begin. Now, the first thing we find is uh, he shows up where John the, the baptizer is. There at the Jordan River. Anyway, he shows up where John is. John's already been telling everybody that this one is coming. Uh, John baptizes Jesus to fulfill all righteousness. The Holy Spirit descends upon him, and God the Father speaks from heaven. This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. I would have loved to have seen that. I would have loved to have been there that day, to have seen and heard all that took place. So this is the initiation of Jesus' ministry. And lo and behold, what is the first thing that happens after this amazing scene, God, uh, the Holy Spirit descends upon him. God speaks. Wow. What happens immediately after that? He's led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. 
Wow. I think there is something for us to consider here. When a person comes to Jesus, right then and there sometimes are the greatest attacks by Satan on that person. Sometimes it gets horrible before it gets better. And that's because Satan is ticked. He's upset. He's going to try to destroy you and drag you down. He doesn't want you to be able to... He doesn't want God to be able to use you for the kingdom of, of God. And so he's going to try to drag you down and destroy you. You know what? Did the same thing to Jesus. So, yeah. His ministry begins with this incredible scene in the wilderness tempted by Satan. Now, let's let's clarify something first before we, we look at that just, just briefly. It says he was tempted by Satan. Theological question. Could Jesus have sinned? Was it possible for him to sin? And some will say, oh, no, 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 it's impossible for God to sin. That's what the Bible says. Okay, so, but remember, he's also human. All right? Could he have sinned? I say absolutely he could have. If Jesus could not have sinned, then what's the big deal about him being sinless? Why emphasize that 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 he 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 didn't he chose not to and he was pure and sinless. So what? If he couldn't have sinned, that's no big deal. But I offer to you, oh, he absolutely could have. And here's Uh, what I use to support that. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. The Hebrew writer says this, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He's talking about Jesus. All right? And he says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, which means he can sympathize with our weaknesses. How's that? Because he's been, he was tempted in every way, just as we are, but was without sin. Now, folks, if he was tempted in every way, just as I am tempted, then he could, then he could have sinned. See, when we're tempted, oh, we obviously are capable and are able to sin. So, if he's tempted like us. Oh, he could have sinned. As a matter of fact, matter of fact, that verse says, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness. He knows what it's like to feel weak. He knows what it's like to be tempted like we are. He just said, no, not going to do it. Wow. Now that, that is impressive. Because realize and understand this. Understand what temptation is. Being tempted is not just somebody getting you to do something that you shouldn't do. No, being tempted means you have the desire to do it. I, I use this illustration a lot. Um, let's say somebody walked in here tonight and uh, uh, smoking a cigarette. Now, look, I'm not. This isn't a deal about smoking. I just, I just use this as an example. Uh, I've, I've never smoked, and I. 
the reason I ha- it just it doesn't appeal to me. I just ugh, I can't stand the smell of smoke. But let's let's just say for for the purpose of the of the uh, illustration, somebody comes in here while we're filming and says, uh, "Hey, uh, hey, Emmett, uh, here, here, you want you want you want to light it up? Come on, come on, you want one? Don't, you really want one, don't you?" And somebody goes, "Look, look, that guy's tempting uh, Mr. Emmett to sin. He's not tempting me." See, that's not tempting to me. Now, there's plenty of things that are. Okay? That's just not my thing. And so, to be tempted with something requires the desire to participate. Now, think about that. Jesus was tempted tempted in every way like we are. But he never sinned. Not once. He said no. Every time, even when the desire was there, he refused to give in. That is a huge deal. And by the way, Jesus, thank you so much. Because if he hadn't have resisted, then we have no sacrifice for sin. Oh, praise God. Thank you, Jesus. So the Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness where he was tempted. Now, uh, you, you may or may not, I figure some of you, maybe all of you, are familiar with that scenario. Okay, if you are familiar, how many things did Satan tempt Jesus with? Excuse me, in the wilderness. If you are familiar with it, you probably said three, right? Uh, one was, excuse me. I mean, he hadn't eaten for 40 days, so he's hungry. So he, he tempts him to turn these stones into bread so he'd have something to eat. Uh, he tempts him to uh, go to the top of the temple and cast himself off because the Bible says, the Scripture says, the angels would catch him lest he dash his foot against the stone, would rescue him. And then he tempted him, he took, tempted him, he took him to a high mountain so he could see all across the whole world. And uh, he said, all of this will be yours if you just bow down and worship me. And Jesus said no on each occasion. He wasn't going to give in to Satan's will on any occasion. So typically we would say Satan tempted him with three things. But you know what? I don't believe that. I believe it was far, far more than that. And I go to Luke's account to make my case. Luke chapter 4. So turn to Luke 4. Luke chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, that's right after his baptism, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert, now listen to this, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. Did you hear that? Where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. So, the Holy Spirit, the inspired writer here, just gives us an example of three things he was tempted with. But y'all, he was tempted for 40 days. This was an onslaught. I mean, this was a, 
hand-to-hand combat going on between Satan and Jesus for 40 days where he didn't eat a thing. He was in such, such battle and war against Satan through all this temptation. Matter of fact, some believe that the verse we, that we looked at, Hebrews 4, he was tempted in every way just as we are. That said that Satan hit him with everything there is in those 40 days. I don't know. But it was a long, drawn-out battle. Oh, and by the way, you have never been tempted with anything that Jesus wasn't tempted with. It's true. It may have come in a different form, but it's the, the, diff, the same type thing. And he, and he, he held up under this battle. Now, I don't believe it was the last time that he was tempted by Satan because after he tries to bring him down and tempt him, and we talked about the examples that it gives, after that he wasn't successful, it says, uh, verse, verse 13, when the devil had finished all this, he, and, and Jesus had won, when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Did you hear that? Oh, he, he wasn't done tempting him. I think he went after him his entire ministry. So, so we get this amazing scene at the beginning, the very beginning of his ministry. And it's an attack by Satan himself, head to head. And of course, Jesus comes out victorious. So he's launched out into his ministry. Now, yeah, he goes through, he's picking his disciples and, and, and getting, re- getting ready to go. And when, he, when this thing kicks off, we have, I think, the most famous and the greatest sermon ever preached. We call it the Sermon on the Mount because he was on the mountainside and the, the multitudes had gathered. Now, we're not going to do an in-depth study of the Sermon on the Mount. You can find those. Go, there, there's tons of them out there. We're not going to do a breakdown study of the Beatitudes at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Great, great stuff. And you can find all these different approaches and gain great insight by what people have out there to offer. That's not our intent. And so we're going to progress rather quickly through this. But there's a couple of things I want you to grasp and I want you to understand. So... Turn your, back, turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Okay, Matthew 5. Uh, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, we see the Sermon on the Mount. Okay? And, so, and it's, it is absolutely incredible. But I want you to notice something as we, as we launch off through it in our, in our abbreviated uh, look at this sermon. I want you to look at, uh, at verse 12. Let's look at verse 12. Jesus speaking. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Notice he didn't say he wouldn't be in the kingdom of heaven. Just just a thought. Would be called least 
in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now get ready for this next statement. First of all, think about the crowd he's speaking to. These are just a, a bunch of Jews hanging out on the hillside, listening to him talk. Just common folks, people looking to him for some kind of hope. And, and look what he said. Who, by the way, in the, in the mind of these people, who are the most spiritually elite people that they know? Well, that would probably be the Pharisees. Okay? Now, I want you to think about, as I read this next verse, I want you to hear this uh, from the minds of those people that were there listening. Now, listen to what Jesus says. Verse 20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Did you hear that? Place yourself on that hillside as a, as a Jew that particular day. And Jesus says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness, what is righteousness? Being right, doing right. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, honestly, if you're there that day and you hear what he just said, you know what he basically, you know what you just heard? I don't have a chance. I got to be better than those guys. And that's how they saw them. That absolutely blew their minds. Okay? But Jesus is setting the stage. Because he meant to blow their mind. He knew that was going to blow their mind. That day, but then what he does is unfold through the rest of this sermon how they can do that. Because here's the problem: the Pharisees missed the whole point. The Pharisees were so caught up in in looking right and looking right on the outside that the inside didn't even matter. And actually, that's that's totally opposite of truth. That's just, that's just backwards of what it's supposed to be. Because Jesus is going to tell us over and over again, you get the inside right, the heart, you see. You get the inside right, the outside will take care of itself. And so the Pharisees, they, they missed the boat. And so what Jesus is going to do, he is now going to look at multiple examples of, uh, of how they missed out how they mess that completely up. Okay? Sorry. Yeah, over and over again, he's going he's to give an example um, of, of what it really means to be a follower, and it comes from the inside, from the heart. Now, he, here's how he's going to do it. He's going to make a figurative statement to make a strong point. Now, that having been said, there's two different types of literary usage in the Bible. Well, I say two. We're going to talk about two different types used in the Bible. You've got literal and you've got figurative. Typically, know what the, we, we know what they would mean. Literal is word for word what it says. Figurative is, it actually means, it's, it's not literally what it says. There's a point to be made from it. 
It doesn't mean that figurative language is any less important than literal. As a matter of fact, we use it all the time to emphasize a point. Um, hey, young man, I've told you a million times, don't you act like that around here. Well, I have, probably haven't told him a million times, correct? But it's to emphasize how important it is to behave. So uh, we use we use figurative language all the time. It doesn't mean it's not important. As a matter of fact, some, sometimes it is used to emphasize a point, and that's what Jesus does here. Now, how do we know whether something's literal or figurative in the Bible? Well, sometimes it's obvious. Uh, for example, the book of Revelation. After chapter 3, the book of Revelation is highly, highly figurative. That's why there's so many different interpretations of it. Okay? But it's obvious. Everybody agrees. Everybody agrees that it's figurative. Okay? Though we don't always agree on, on the interpretation of it. But we do agree that it's that it's highly figurative. So sometimes it's obvious. Other times we have to base it on the context of the passage. Is it a literal context or is it a figurative? Or is it a figurative context? And so we try to be consistent with that if we can tell from the context. Here's my proposal. I'm proposing that Jesus is about to use a series of figurative statements to try to clarify a very important point. Okay? So, as we begin, let's, I just I lay the groundwork. That, that's, my, that's my case, and there's a reason I'm emphasizing it now. Alright, so but let, let's take a look and see if that doesn't play out as true. Alright, Matthew chapter 5. Look at verse 21. Now he's launching off into this series. Okay, here we go. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder. Have they heard that? Well, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Ten Commandments. For, for, okay. You have heard that it was said, do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, see, he's going he's to try to clarify this. But I tell you that anyone who's angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. What? Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka. Okay, that, that's a, a derogatory term. Who says Raka is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fires of hell. Okay, when I, growing up, uh, I was taught that you, you call somebody a fool, you go to hell. And I, I would venture to say that a lot of you, if you grew up in church, were taught the same thing. You call somebody a fool, you go to hell. Is that really what Jesus is, is trying to say here? Is that really what he's trying to say? No, it's not what he's trying to say. What he's trying to say is there's more involved. When it says do not murder, there's more involved than just not killing someone. It, how you, your, your attitude towards people, how you feel towards people is what's important. 
don't don't treat people like that. Don't don't say things like that to people. Don't don't think like that uh, about people. Because you know what? If you'll get the inside right, if you'll have the right attitude towards people, you're not going to kill them. So it's about more than just not killing them. It goes it goes deeper than that. It's how you feel about people, your attitude towards them. So he says, you call somebody a fool, you're in danger of the fire of hell. That's a figurative statement, a powerful statement to try to make a point on how important it is to have the right attitude towards people. Now, just just hang with me. I think I can make this, this point pretty clear. Okay, look at verse uh, 27. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. Have they heard that? Yeah, obviously. But I tell you, okay, here's what you've heard. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for your to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Do what? You've heard that it was says says that you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. Of course they've heard that. But it's, it's deeper than that. It goes beyond that. You, you don't even look at a woman lustily. If you, if, you, if you do, if you can't stop, you just poke your eye out. Cut your hand off. That's going to stop you from... Wait, wait. Does he, does he literally mean poke your eye out? Well, somebody say, well, somebody might say, well, he might if you can't. I don't think that's the point. Okay? The point is, first off, you've got, you better control your thoughts. You better control what's going on on the inside. Because if you don't, it's going to bring about bad choices on the outside. You've heard it was said, do not commit adultery. I'm telling you something right here and now. You don't even look at a woman lustfully. And, and if so, you poke your eye. Poke your eye out? I, I don't think that's literal. I think he's trying to emphasize how important it is to control our thinking and our thoughts. Why? Because our thoughts lead to action. See that? I'm trying to see the numbers. Go to verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, you ready? But I tell you, do not swear at all. Do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even 
One hair, white or black. Simply let your yes be yes and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. What? So, so if you swear at all, that, that is straight from Satan. So does that mean, let's say, let's, now this is going to be terrible. Um, well, just bear with me. I'm, I'm trying to produce an illustration and it might be uncomfortable. My, my sweet mother, okay, my mother passed away several years ago. Greatest woman has ever walked the planet. And, uh, but I'm going to use the relationship mother-son as an illustration. Let's say, this is years ago, this is not true, okay, hypothetical, right? God, I have to emphasize it. But let's say years ago, uh, some terrible, terrible person broke into our home and uh, took my mother's life, murdered my mother, and I happened to be locked in a closet, but there was an opening I could see through and I saw the whole thing. And uh, this guy is arrested the prosecution comes to me. I tell them I've seen the whole thing. They've got an eyewitness. So it's a slam dunk in the courtroom. So let's say the day of the trial comes. Prosecution calls me to testify. And uh, I get up to the front. And they say, raise your right hand and repeat after me. Do you solemnly swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? So help you God. And I say, no. And the the prosecutor goes, wait a minute, maybe you didn't hear me. Just, you know, do you solemnly swear to tell the truth and the whole truth? How does that go? I just said it. Do you solemnly swear to tell the truth and the whole truth? Uh, <laughs> so help you God. I can't remember now all of a sudden. Uh, and I say, no. And the judge says, excuse me, what, what's, what's the problem? I said, I, and I say, I, I, I can't swear. What? Well, yeah, that's what Jesus told me. He said it right there in the Sermon on the Mount. Do not swear at all. I, so I, I, I can't do it. Now, you know, honestly, I have known people, acquaintances of mine through the years, that did take that position. They would not testify in court because of that. And I respect them for it. I see where they're coming from. I don't think that's the point in the passage. Okay, stay, let's stay consistent with this context. I think he's emphasizing anything beyond your yes or no, anything beyond that comes from the evil one to swear. I don't think that's the point. I think because of what he says, Jesus is trying to say, look, be a person of your word. Let your yes be yes and your no, no. When you tell, when you tell someone, yes, I will... They count on it. And when you tell them, no, I won't, it means something. I remember the days when you didn't have to have a bunch of written contracts for everything. I remember I was, I was a boy, but I can remember those days when a man and another man or a woman would shake hands on something and it was, they were bound to that. Their word meant something. And I, I think that's, Jesus is trying to tell us, be a person like that. So that when you, as you interact with people and you give them your word, it's money. They can take that to the bank. They can, they can count on that. All right? Continue. Watch this next one.
verse 38. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. Well, there's folks that like that idea. They like it. Not well, here's what Jesus says. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, now listen to these words. Do not resist an evil person. Stop. What? Jesus just said it. Do not resist an evil person. Hmm. Okay, well, so I know what that means. That's like years ago when our our three daughters were young. Uh, Between them and my wife, excuse me, I don't know how many times I was awakened in the middle of the night because somebody heard something, you know, and they were scared. and, And so... Um, let, let's here we go with another hypothetical. This is another hypothetical, like like a while ago. My mother was not murdered. No, it didn't happen. Uh, we got to go a few more minutes. Okay, give me a few more. That was hypothetical. This is too. Let's pretend for a moment and say one night my wife wakes up and tells me she heard a noise. This is hypothetical. The reason I'm emphasizing that, I have used this in the past, and there's certain folks who have just been star-eyed like, I cannot believe this happened. It didn't, okay? So let's pretend my wife wakes me up. I heard something. And so let's say I go in to check on the girls. We have twins and then a younger daughter. Let's say that I, I open the door to the twins' room. Now, this is a little weird and spooky, but let's just say there's a person a very large person in the room with a ski mask on and a knife at the throat of one of my daughters. Well, obviously, I would say, excuse me, sorry to interrupt. Um, Jesus tells me not to resist an evil person. You obviously qualify. So uh, whatever, I've got another daughter down the hall, my wife at And I know that's totally ridiculous, but I'm hoping it's making my point. Word for word, Jesus says, do not resist an evil person. I think that's consistent with the context. He's trying to make a point. Look what he says right after that. Do not resist an evil person. You ready? If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Does that mean we can't defend ourselves if someone attacks us? I don't believe that for a minute. I don't believe that's what he's trying to say. Maybe he's trying to say, don't be someone who's always out for revenge, always looking for revenge. Because let's let's be honest, a lot of us, and I, I throw myself into this boat a lot, someone does something bad or terrible to me, Unfortunately, oftentimes our first reaction is to try is how am I going to get back? And he said, Don't don't be like that. Don't doesn't mean we can't defend ourselves if somebody attacks us. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Don't behave like the world does in these kind of, of confrontations. I mean, don't don't do that. Look, he says in verse 41, 
If someone forces you to go one mile, go within two miles. Now, we're not going to get into to the, 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 the uh, cultural implications of that, but the point is still the same. Look at this one. This one will make it great. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Oh. Now, here's the way I used to illustrate in when I was teaching class full of, of teenagers. Okay, so I just stop and say, okay, uh, walk up to one of them and say, could I have $20, please? And they're like, well, you're crazy. And I would say, well, what are you, what are you you're going to disobey Jesus? And right there, word for word, he says, give to the one who asks of you. So, may I have $20, please? You, you continue to say... Guys, that's not literal. It doesn't mean that he doesn't want us to be generous to folks in need. And maybe that's the whole idea. But he emphasizes with with a figurative... Somebody asks you something, you just give it to them. Be a generous person. Be one who takes care of folks around you. But if I go word for word, then I have to, no matter who it is or what it's for... They ask me what I have to give it to them. That's not the point. Look at the look at this next one. He tells us to love our enemies. All right. Verse forty-three. You have heard that it was said, "Love your neighbor and hate your enemy." Well, that's easy to do. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be. Sons of your Father in heaven. Now look. This, ready? This doesn't mean you got to be best buds with them. This doesn't mean that, because sometimes your enemies are dangerous. So what, if, if this is figurative, what might it mean? Well, for one thing, I, I think it boils down to he's challenging us to see people like God sees people. You think about it. God sees enemies every moment of every day, and he loves them anyway. Doesn't mean he likes what they're doing. Doesn't mean he likes the way they tr- they're treating him. But he does have their best interest at heart. And isn't that, what, isn't that what we're called to do? Even to our enemies, pray for them. Want the best for them. Like, for example, Osama bin Laden. Would you have rather he be assassinated like he was, was or converted to Jesus? I would rather him, him have been converted, y'all. Can you imagine the difference he might have made in the Middle East? So I do want the best for him. That's difficult sometimes. Okay, but I'll prove to you this is figurative because look what he says at the end of this paragraph. Well, okay, well, well, go ahead and, and pick up right there where we left off, verse 44. 44? Yeah. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Be like God in this. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Look, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? And not even the tax collectors are not even the tax collectors doing that. And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? 
Here's how, be like God. And in, in our attitude towards people, even our enemies, look at the last statement of the paragraph. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Did you hear it? There's your figurative statement. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. I can't, I can't do that. So I'm out. I'm done. I stop right there because I can't do that. No, I can't. But I can see people through the lens that God sees people. I can do, I can do that. And I can at least try. Okay? Look at the next... You know what? Mm-mm-mm. Now, Now, let me say this before we go to next time. I skipped one. Did you notice? I skipped one on purpose. We'll get there. Don't worry. We're not going to leave it skipped. If you don't, if you didn't realize that at the time, go back and look at where we've been. But I did skip one on purpose, and so uh, we'll we'll get it and some others as I try to make this case for the context of the Sermon on the Mount. All right. So that's all for tonight. You guys uh, have a great week, and uh, we'll be back together soon. Bye. <laughs>